This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Patreon, Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, and Alex. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. If we keep talking to each other, we are able to learn from each other, to ask important questions, to consider new perspectives, to explore ideas, to resist ideology and echo chambers, to defend individual liberty, to see nuance, to learn from history, to change our minds, to recognize ourselves in each other. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. And it's something that I wanna share. Jesse Single is a journalist and author and has written for the New York Times and New York Magazine. During our conversation, Jesse talks about freedom of speech in America, the effect of woke culture on journalism, cancel culture in our society, and the reaction to his Atlantic article, When Children Say They're Trans, published in 2018. Jesse writes on Substack and co-hosts the podcast Blocked and Reported with Katie Herzog. I admire Jesse's commitment to honest and balanced journalism especially related to emotionally charged social topics. He's optimistic that the vast majority of our culture remains committed to free expression and open debate, despite his own experience with calls for his own cancellation. And I hope he's right, that attempts of censorship stem from the loudest, not the largest, group. There's a reason that the First Amendment is number one. It's the principle on which all attempts at discovering truth and improving our ideas depend. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jesse Single. All right, Jesse. Well, first of all, just wanted to say thank you again for making the time. I know we've been uh, scheduling this for weeks, maybe more than a month now. Um, it's really great to have you on and to have the conversation. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, happy to come on. Thank you, man. So first, I, I've i wanted to speak with you for multiple reasons, but I think um, I always like at the beginning of the conversations I do for the podcast to get kind of the background story from people I speak with as to why they do what they do, how they got interested in their subject matter of expertise. And, you know, you've been a journalist for quite some time now. What's, what's the appeal there initially? What, what got you into the work you're doing now, both podcasting, writing, journalism in general? How, how did you, how'd you get interested in that stuff? Yeah, it's not a particularly exciting story. I mean, I, I wrote a lot in college uh, for sort of the college newspaper and I did some humor writing and, Writing was sort of the only thing I could see myself doing for a living. So after I graduated, I um, you know got some internships, including unpaid ones. It's much easier to break into this field if you're in the sort of position where you can do that. I think it's a big problem in journalism. But I found my way to a uh, DC area think tank, uh, Center for American Progress, that yep. had sort of a youth arm called Campus Progress. I I was an editor there. From there, I. Went to Washington Monthly, where I was a web editor, and um, eventually I, I got back to my hometown of Boston, where I was sort of a permalancer for the editorial page there. And I realized I wanted to be able to do sort of longer, more in-depth work. Um, I liked what I was doing, but it was a it wasn't sort of a long-term good position because there wasn't much room for advancement uh, within sort of an old-school newspaper, and b it was mostly sort of short opinion-y stuff, which is what I'd been doing all along. Uh, I, I'd been getting more interested in sort of why people disagree about stuff uh, as opposed to just telling them they're wrong. I was you know, pretty influenced by like John Haidt, folks like that. Yeah. Um, and I ended up uh, very fortunately getting into a public policy program that's sort of covered the same way a PhD program is covered. And that really gave me some background in basic statistics. I'm not, I'm not good at statistics. I'm not good at numbers, but I, you know, basic statistics, basic econ, and that put me in a much better position to write sort of, uh, you know, longer, more in-depth stories. And then the, the last bit of good luck was I was um, doing a year-long fellowship in Berlin after grad school. And I was sitting in a coffee shop trying to figure out what I wanted to do, looking at job listings, because I, I figured I wanted to be in New York. And I saw that New York Magazine was starting a... Uh, uh, behavioral science vertical. And I'd already been doing a fair amount of writing on that subject for the Daily Beast. So it just sort of uh, everything clicked together and I I got that job and it, it worked out. 
You mentioned the name Jonathan Haidt, and he's been influential for me as well. And I'd be curious to know just from your exposure to him, what, what about his work was you, did you find appealing or interesting or formative in your, in your work, in your outlook on America, on life in general? The righteous mind really drove home for me that a lot of people's uh, differences in their senses of morality probably come from something very deep seated. And i had been spending a lot of time, like, you know, I was in 2003 writing about how silly it was. People opposed gay marriage. I, I'm from Massachusetts. We were, I think the first state where it was legalized by our Supreme court. Uh, and you can sort of bang your head against a wall. If you try to argue about this stuff rationally or reasonably, I, I think if you want any uh, chance at persuading people, you need to understand that people have different so-called moral foundations. I've been hearing for a few years now that there's been some challenges to, to Heights' work, and, and folks should just uh, Google moral foundations theory. It would probably take a while to run it down. Mm-hmm. But I think that the basic insight that people are sort of activated uh, in terms of morality and outrage by different sorts of concerns is is clearly true and is very important, uh, even if maybe the version of the theory we have 20 years from now is different from what we have today. Hmm. How did that shape your outlook? I, I resonate very much with your, uh, with your opinion about, you know, going back in 2003. I, re- I remember those years well. And kind of being in disbelief that there were people in opposition to what was happening in the gay rights movement at the time. Um, what about Heights work, if anything, changed your, I don't know, sensibilities about those who disagreed with you? And I'm wondering if that also had a formative effect on you and the, the work you've done recently, too. I think um, a, a lot of his tying those beliefs and beliefs like them to sort of ancient disgust modules, for lack of a better term, like we're, we're evolved in a very different than the one we live in today. And my interpretation of opposition to homosexuality is sort of a misfiring of these uh, evolutionary forces within us that kept us safe, that, that kept us away from stuff that's disgusting, that could be infectious and kill us. Gay people are not disgusting. Homosexuality is not disgusting, but but our brain can latch on to stuff in weird ways, especially when you mix it with, well, especially given its interactions with human culture. So I think, hmm. you know, I, I, I'm not going to be coy here. I think it's sort of a, a misfiring or a miswiring. I think it's morally incorrect based on my own values, but that helped me understand that what's going on here isn't just like I'm the smart blue state person. They're the ignorant red state people. I think what's going on is is, is more nuanced. Yeah. And it is that nuance and your focus on on our culture that is largely why I wanted to speak with you. And I'd love to just give ample time to getting your thoughts on where we are right now. We're having this conversation in September of 2021. You have gained some notoriety for work you've done over your career. Uh, I think in a long form piece, especially related to uh, the trans movement um, for the Atlantic. And I want to talk to you about nuance and where we are and how in your mind we we got to this point um you know you can take this anywhere you think is important but i personally have have always been um a democrat and i think you know was a was much more of a leftist when i was younger i think i've moderated largely since um i was in college and it it has been disconcerting to me to witness some of the changes in um, the norms related to freedom of speech and uh, differences of opinion on my side of the aisle. And in reading your work and in knowing a little bit about you, I would imagine you might identify with some of that. Uh, I'd like to just give you a, a forum or give you some time to talk about where you think we are right now related to freedom of speech, related to you know what's commonly known now as woke culture. How did we get here? Where are we right now? Yeah, I think it's complicated. I mean, you know, smarter political science folks than I do think polarization has become a problem. There's a huge amount of debate about uh, whether it's symmetric or asymmetric. My For a long time, my understanding was Republicans, or at least the Republican base, are further to the right than the Democratic base is to the left. I still think that's true with regard to the Democratic base, because the Democratic base is not, you know, has a tinge of even social conservatism to it. Uh, 
I do think clearly in terms of like what's being produced by mainstream outlets and big names, there's there's more polarizing material than ever before. I'm not necessarily convinced that we're like trapped in some downward spiral because there's also been some countervailing forces. Like there's a, a pretty big sort of conversation and, and discourse about this, about polarization, about, you know, treating your ideological opponents as though they're idiots or monsters excuse me, there's also been, it's just hard for me sitting where I am to, to claim that like things are bad for free speech because I, I, you know, I've benefited a lot from this as has my podcast co-host, co-host Katie Herzog. There's a huge market for what we're doing, for what a lot of people on Substack are doing. So uh, if anything, I think the mainstream outlets are, are, they must be realizing that they're leaving listeners and viewers on the table by, taking an increasingly narrow view of things. And, and really, it seems like often what they're doing is they're just appealing to the politics of their 25-year-old staffers who are mostly from, you know, good colleges. And, and that's a very specific worldview that that isn't held by most people. Yeah. And for people that are unfamiliar with what we're talking about, maybe I should back up uh, just quickly and and ask you, when, when, we are, when we use these kind of these words, like phrases like woke culture, in your mind, what what does that mean? Yeah, I don't I don't love the word woke because I think everyone defines it differently. Yeah. I, to me, what I'm concerned about is is a liberalism, and a liberalism is uh, running around trying to get people fired, even for minor offenses, uh, seeking investigations and in, in sort of college or workplace settings for political disagreement. Uh, it's the idea that sort of narrow disagreements are, are life and death, which you often see. I, it's just sort of, to me, there's there's a worldview of, of this sort of person who's going to spend a lot of time on Twitter trying to get other people fired. And I don't like that. I'm not saying no one should ever be fired. If you work in a public facing role and, and you're a Nazi party member on the side, yeah, you should probably be fired. Um, but I, I think it is this sense that like every aspect of political of everyday life has to be fiercely political and and nothing and you can't just go to work and do your job the politics have to be a big part of even that yeah um, i'm already lumping together which shows how this is a difficult thing to talk about but to me it, it just comes down to a liberalism and to not giving people forgiveness and grace and the benefit of the doubt and do you have a, a general sense personally how or a belief, I guess I should say personally, how we got here. What is the trajectory that led us to a point where this is even something that we're talking about? I think there's like some cyclical element here. John Chait had a, a New York Magazine cover story about political correctness in 2014, 2015. He pointed out that like around the turn of the century, um, I think, I'm trying to think when he was in college. I think he was in college in the mid nineties or so. And he said things were, uh, I'm going to misremember this. The point of the point is it cycles <laughs> when I was in, when I was in college, 2002 to 2006, it was, it was not that bad. So, um, there's the cyclical view where sometimes things get heated, then they calm down, then they get heated, then they calm down. I think what's different now, social media and technology. And I think there's a chance that this sort of crest of the wave, might not calm down or might calm down at, at sort of a higher baseline. That's what worries me because there's uh, it, social media has a way of drawing people into these very agitated states and keeping them there. That's sort of the whole business model. So, yeah. you know, how we got there, it's a mix of social media. Donald Trump obviously was a huge shock. And I think really maybe we shouldn't have been surprised that he was elected, but, I, but we were surprised. I was surprised. I was horrified by it. And I think, you know, an event like that is going to make scramble people's brains a little bit, which it did. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, that that would be my sort of short answer. But, you know, I, I will say I don't think we're necessarily on like a permanent negative negative trajectory in terms of things like free speech. Like American, my understanding is American views on free speech and like what pe what should be punishable or what the government should interfere with, like they stay pretty much the same. Uh, the The things people say are punishment-worthy change. Like sometimes it's communism or atheism or racism, but I, I'm not yet aware of any like big sea change in actual American public opinion on this stuff. There may have been changes in the views of like the people with the biggest platform. So I do think increasingly take on uh, radical poses. Yeah. And I'm curious to know from, from your side, if you think that the people that are causing, the individuals, right, who are kind of fomenting this, 
this rage, this kind of tribalism, it, is it the case in your mind that it is, they're not the largest group in America, they're just the loudest? It's, it's kind of like an intolerant mi minority idea there? Or wh what's your take on kind of the percentages of the population that's really pushing, for lack of a better phrase, the, the woke moment that we're living in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a pretty, pretty small group. Um, you know, I, as a political scientist, and I think Arizona, I'm forgetting your name, uh, mentioned this concept of the exhausted majority. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was someone else. People can Google that and see the origin. But basically, it's this idea that like more and more people are not participating in like public political life or not talking about politics on. Facebook because it's exhausting and they don't want to be called a monster or a baby killer or a bigot. Uh, I, I'm, I think that's probably part of what's going on, but within media, for example, like that's not what's going on is everything's getting more politicized and more and more radical. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen like this weird thing where organizations like the ACLU and the Lancet won't use the term women or, or, or will, give high profile statements where they don't talk about women getting pregnant or women needing a right to abortion. The theory being that's not inclusive of, of people who aren't women who get pregnant and, and whatever one's thoughts on that, that's like a pretty obscure thing to worry about. And that's not something the average American is going to react well to because, you know, people's understanding of the world is, is men don't get pregnant women. Do. <laughs> so I, I think that's an example of like, it, it's telling. I bet you anything if you polled Americans on whether the term pregnant women is offensive. I would love polling on this. It would not shock me if 85% of Americans said that term is not offensive, but every seemingly every major liberal institution now is treating that as a valid position. And, and it's a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say anti-democratic because it's obviously not the ACLU's job or the Lancet's job to like fully reflect the will of the people. They're not the government, but there's there's something there's a little bit of a sense of like, the elites sort of imposing new linguistic understandings or new views on everyone. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily healthy. Yeah. And to, to be generous to the people who are uh, advertising this type of language, you know, the, the change in the way that we speak about men and women, for example, or the fact that women can become pregnant, to be generous to them, um, how do you explain the insistence, the interest in uh, not using a phrase like, you know, pregnant women for fear of offending those who are not women themselves. Where, where, where does that come from at its root? Yeah. I mean, it's just the idea that there are some, there are some female people who identify as men or identify as non-binary. So if you ask them, are you a woman? They would say no. So therefore the thinking goes men and non-binary people can get pregnant. To me, it's just sort of board games because obviously when we say women's risk of uh or, or the fact when we talk about how women bear the risks of pregnancy we're just talking about a biological category we're not talking about what they identify as it doesn't matter if you identify as a woman if you're female you can get pregnant and that's the way language works it, it sort of sometimes cuts things into broad categories so i had the steel man version of it is you're trying to be inclusive i just think the steel man version of it um entails pretending that when we say pregnant women, we mean people who identify as women when that has never been the case. Yeah. And it's interesting hearing you say this because I I was expecting a little bit more of, um, not, maybe not vitriol, but concern about where we are, uh, given my knowledge of things that have happened to you in your own writing and some of the backlash that you've received from specifically one article that, that you wrote for The Atlantic in 2018. Am I right in concluding that you think, you know, there is an adequate pushback to this kind of alteration in language, the, the kind of author authoritarian impulse to change the way that people speak in our culture? Or do you think this is a legitimate problem that we, we really are should be concerned about? I mean, I think it's pathetic that Vox now will not talk about the effect of, of abortion bans on women. Like you can look at, I, I, I was curious, I looked up their coverage of this terrible Texas law and four of the five articles don't use the term women, except uh, to refer to like the names of organizations or in quotes. That's bad. I think it, it probably makes it harder to, to politically organize for feminists or people who care about feminism. Um I think there's so much pushback to it and th this language is so unappealing to so many people that it's probably 
just not going to work. And that's my theory. I mean, so what people often say is, well, language changes over time. It's like, okay, it, but it tends to change organically, not because like Middlebury graduates are telling you, you can't use that word anymore. So I'm a skeptical that we're not going to have phrases like pregnant women in 20 years. And I, I think what's revealing on this and a lot of other issues is like when there's a controversy and 80% or 90% of the political spectrum clearly disagrees with something, that's not a good sign. So if these fights, even among Democrats, it's very controversial to use phrases like pregnant women. Uh, the Lancet one was incredible. It was, I think, bodies that menstruate, which is just sounds ridiculous. So I don't know. You're starting from a baseline of like 10 or 15 or 20% of the population agreeing with you. I don't really see how you're going to make that the common usage. Yeah. I want to talk about, and I, I think you have spoken at length about what happened to you in, in 2018. And I, I want to get into the article that, that I referenced earlier. The, the title is When Children Say They're Trans, which I just recently reread. Um, and I, I guess I'd... I, would love to provide you with a, a platform to just talk about your interest in writing that long form article. I mean, it is quite lengthy and detailed and, and very nuanced. Where did the interest in coming, where did the interest come from in writing that specific piece? And what, what was the reaction that happened to you? I mean, you're somebody that has kind of lived in this uh, crucible, at least for a, a period of time. Um, what happened to you after the the publication of, of that article as well? Um, you know, I, I got into it. I, I had done another story about a um, gender identity clinic in Canada that got shut down under really questionable circumstances. I mean, people basically spread lies and rumors about this guy, Kenneth Zucker, because they thought he wasn't uh, affirming enough to trans youth. That that made me realize this was like a really hot button subject. And and from there, I, I found the accounts of some detransitioners, which are young people or usually young people who transitioned and then regretted it. And um, it just seemed like, you know, trans kids were everywhere and it would be good to have a big magazine article laying out what the process looks like for, for determining a kid is or isn't ready to transition. And it's um, the article includes plenty of happily transitioned people. I think people who haven't read it believe it's anti-transition, which it just isn't. Hmm. But, uh, you know, the response was a huge amount of anger online. Um, I'm sure there's some people who think I shouldn't be allowed to work in journalism again after that, although they have a lot of trouble in my experience, pointing out anything wrong with the article, uh, other than, you know, the, I, I sort of semi sympathetically mentioned that some parents think their kids, genders, identity, uh, gender identities are socially influenced, which obviously kids, gender identities are socially influenced. They're kids, they're teenagers. The idea that this couldn't be influenced by peer or culture is, is insane. So I, you know, it was, it was a really big blast of online outrage and sort of some hit pieces written about me, the non-Twitter feedback has been, I'd say 90% positive. Like I still get emails uh, years later or three, more than three years later now, uh, thanking me for writing the piece. And one of the clinicians featured heavily in the piece, uh, she continues to get emails from parents who just want their kids to get good care. So, mm. you know, and, and I cannot say the last three years since this article came out have been bad for me professionally. It's been the opposite. I've been very fortunate. So it's this weird thing where it's like, I don't know, I, 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 I'm furious at how some other journalists handled this. And I think they were really dishonest, like what they wrote, but it, I don't think it worked for the most part. So that's why I don't really want to complain about being canceled. It would feel disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to go into the details of the article itself, um, you mentioned this, that, you know, I, I found it to be a quite a balanced per, uh, storytelling and, and balanced perspective on the, uh, that the family members dealing with children who are claiming to be trans and are, are expressing an interest in transitioning. Um, you know, it's been a few years, I know, since the article came out, but I would love for you to to speak about what you remember from that kind of reporting and and give ample time to both the children that seemed, as you mentioned, happily transitioned after surgery, after hormone therapy, uh, and those those who didn't. And I think it's it's the stories of those who didn't that 
is of particular interest to me personally because I, I don't think it's something that is highlighted very often, but it, it, it does exist. Those stories do exist. Yeah, I mean, I should say like one of the conceits of a magazine article is you need individual stories. So we should be relying on data here. We don't have data and I had to write a magazine article, so I had to find individual stories. But it basically, it just seems like there's a range of outcomes. I, I, I think it would surprise me if it wasn't the case that the vast majority of kids who went on blockers and hormones uh, didn't feel good about that, at least in the short term, you know, if they didn't have any sort of medical issues or anything, because like there's a reason they're seeking them out. Uh, my concern is from what I've heard is like the diag there, this is like sort of a wild west area of medicine and there's not good diagnostic practices in place. And there's a lot of clinicians who really want to be part of this movement and want to help, but I don't really think they understand the sort of developmental concerns at work. Um, and my, I really enjoyed my conversations with clinicians who, who work with kids on this process of, of figuring out who they are or who they're going to you know, become and whether hormones and, and maybe surgery down the road are right for them. And the, the differences you sense when you talk to the most careful clinicians who really view this as like a slow dynamic process of like a young person's identity unfolding versus the more activist clinicians who just think they can sort of tell right away or very soon, quickly after meeting them, which kids are trans and can give them hormones and surgery in short order. I just think the the former approach, given the dangerous paucity of data on this, is 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 strikes me as better and more careful because we we do not have anything like decent outcome data on this. We really don't, and it's been very disheartening to see so many media outlets and so many activists just really lie to parents. Mm. I'm not saying they all know they're lying, but they're in effect lying when they say that we have really good outcome data on this. Or like the science is good, the science is solid. It's not. We really don't. We have basically two cohorts of kids, both of whom transitioned in very different circumstances than what's going on in much of the U.S. And and we just desperately need more data. I think everyone agrees on that. Yeah. And, and for, for people that are have never heard of a story where a kid does go through, right, it, it maybe has, has an interaction with a more activist clinician, does go through with a, a transition themselves, does go through hormone therapy, um, and then at some point later decides it was a mistake. Uh, if you can remember any of the details from people you profiled in the article, I would love for you to, to just give um, real life examples or a real life example of someone that this happened to, just not to indicate that this is even the majority of cases, but that it can happen. It's something that needs to be considered for families who are faced with a situation like this. Uh, yeah, I mean, one I, I think Max actually recently wrote a book about detransitioning, but uh, Max Robinson is jumping to my head. Uh, she transitioned under conditions of like a lot of trauma and diso dissociation from her body and, and just various mental health problems. And when she found certain queer communities, she decided that the cause of all this, these bad feelings was, was a mismatch with her gender identity and that she had to try to become a man. And, and she went on, um, hormones and I, I believe had surgery too. So that's the kind of thing where like, if, if, if we had a better mental health care system and we had better clinicians work in this area, if a kid comes into the office with like a lot of other mental health problems, you really want to make sure that like the, the root of their concern has to do with some durable, deep seated sense of mismatch with real gender dysphoria. Because it, to me, it's pretty easy to see how like, if you're a, a struggling adolescent and you don't know exactly what's wrong with you or why you feel so crappy, you could go online and find a pretty pat storyline that all you need to do to feel better is transition and to get on some hormones. And you see a ton of kids who believe this and some of them may be right, but there, there has to be a role for adults to sort of to gatekeep here. I mean, both morally and ethically 14 and 15 year olds cannot consent to their own treatment. They're not, they don't have the capacity to. So and I don't, it's weird to me, any of this is controversial and it, it, worries me we're in the midst of a little bit of a moral panic that it is controversial to say 13 and 14 year olds don't always know who they are or what they'll want or, or you know, where they'll be 10 years from now. Hmm. And what do you make of that? I mean, the fact that there is a pushback to what seems like quite a reasonable concern, right? That these are, these are young, we've all been that age. We all remember how awkward it was and, and confusing it was. How do you explain the resistance to 
uh, you know, a, a conservative approach here, right? A, an incremental approach, a, a, an approach that has a degree of doubt within it. I think, I mean, it's there's a lot of moral panic surrounding kids. I mean, think of the sex abuse panic when we society or important people in society decided that uh, we could trust three-year-olds or four-year-olds accounts under like really coercive questioning about having been the victim of these bizarre gonzo satanic rituals. I mean, this is really a thing society believed that there was this vast sort of conspiracy of Satanists torturing kids and killing animals and killing babies. And that was really on the basis of what three and four and five-year-olds said. And I think there's a little bit of overlap here. This this idea that kids just know, like capital K, no. Kids know sometimes, but kids also need guidance. And, and people's brains shut off at the idea of kids being harmed. And and in this discourse, unfortunately, people are spreading the belief that unless kids are able to gain access to hormones like immediately or puberty blockers immediately, they're just going to kill themselves, which A, we just, we don't have the data to support that. Like it, I, I do think in like certain extreme cases of kids suffering unrelentlessly from gender dysphoria, if you deny the medicine, yeah, that could be tied to a suicide attempt. But the idea that there's vast numbers of kids about to kill themselves unless they can immediately go on puberty blockers and hormones is not evidence-based. And given the way social contagion works, you're probably increasing the likelihood of that happening by repeating that over and over and over, by priming kids to think that they will become suicidal unless they get the medicine they've decided they wanted like right now. It's just a pretty dangerous situation, actually. And there's a lot of like really irresponsible language going on. And you mentioned... You mentioned as well, or we we've been talking a little bit about the the wild west nature of this treatment, and the, the there seems to be a lot of unknowns related to the procedures that are taking place right now. Do you have a general sense? Uh, do we have the statistics available at this point to know what percentage of kids, and let's say kids are you know people under the age of fourteen who do transition, who later decide it, it was a mistake? No, we have we have no statistics on that at all. Uh, we really don't. We have the best statistics we have come from a Dutch clinic that keeps very good records and that had kids. They they were sort of the pioneers of the puberty blocking and uh, hormones protocol, and they had kids go through this process very carefully with a lot of psychological assessment. They found that in childhood, most kids eventually uh, no longer wanted to transition. The gender dysphoria went away in time. For kids whose gender dysphoria stuck around throughout childhood, by the time they reached adolescence, it, it seems like if you're in that boat, your gender dysphoria is probably going to stick around. And those are the kids they put eventually put on blockers and hormones. Once kids were on that medical path, they tended to stay on it. I think the overwhelming majority of it. So majority of them did. You can't take from that what we would expect the results to be in an American clinic with a 14-year-old who started feeling gender dysphoric six months ago and who starts hormones, which does happen sometimes. Um, American clinics, in my view, have done a really bad job of of keeping any data, and data would be very valuable here. I've, I've also seen this disturbing thing in at least one case, a famous clinician publicly said that she was like basically unaware of hardly any of her clients detransitioning or regretting. I forget the exact words she used, but then if you look at her data, um, something like 40% of the kids she put on hormones, her clinic lost to follow-up, meaning they couldn't get back in touch with them. And, and definitely at the very least, that means they're not coming back to that clinic for hormones, which certainly to me suggests some of them are no longer on hormones. So that that that's where things get a little dangerous. If you have a clinician saying, no, I have a very low regret rate, but that same clinician doesn't know where potentially dozens or hundreds of her, her clients are. That's what I mean when I say, I think there's some signs of like really sloppy work here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good point. Um, I wanted to also speak with you about the state of journalism currently. And you alluded to this, I think very, very honestly, that it would be disingenuous for you to, to say that what has happened to you over the last few years has been bad professionally. Uh, you know, from my reading of your situation professionally currently, you're, you're kind of an independent agent, right? Like you, you have plenty of supporters who are independently financing your work, who are interested in what you're doing. Um, and you've been able to kind of transition out of maybe not entirely, but you have the freedom, it seems, to not rely upon 
institutional work to support yourself, to be able to do what you do for a career. And I wanted to ask you if you think that is the norm or you th if you think that journalism as it currently stands, especially in America, is in a state of peril, is, is, has been rotted, uh, that there is something rotten from within it. How, how do you view where we are uh, right now as related to good journalism in the country? And do you regard yourself kind of as the exception or uh, as a potential you know, hope for people like yourself who are interested in continuing to cover what they're interested in? Um, I, I think I was basically like in a perfect position to ride the current, the present currents. I was like, I, I'm not obviously not like super famous or anything, but I was established enough that I could start a Substack that eventually became successful. And I started a podcast that, um, you know, thanks in large part to Katie became successful too. We, she also came in with a platform where similar ages. I think if you're in our situation where you already have a platform and you're willing to sort of speak openly and freely about stuff that'll make people mad at you on Twitter, uh, it's a pretty good time to be a journalist. I, I do think there's like journalism is otherwise eviscerated. There's very little local and like regional reporting anymore. God knows what's going on in like city halls of cities where um, there used to be a newspaper, but there isn't before. That stuff is all really bad. I can still pitch mainstream outlets if I want to. I mean, I just, I, I've been fortunate in that regard. I'm sure if I wanted to write for Vice or Jezebel, they wouldn't let me, but I don't want to write for them and I don't need to. Um, so I've, I, I definitely want to keep a foot in the world of like mainstream outlets because they provide valuable editing. And I like a lot of mainstream outlets, but uh, I think overall media outlets cannot be in a position where they're only writing for like the wokest 15% of the country or, or use whatever word you want if you don't like woke. But some of the coverage you see, including what I just mentioned of like Vox being unable to talk about abortion as a women's issue is just so disconnected from how most of the country talks. I, I think you're really putting a hard cap on your audience and how much genuine engagement you'll get with your work. And I Whatever you think about Joe Rogan, it should tell people something about how successful his podcast has been, because all he does is bring people on from across the political spectrum. Well, not across. I think he should have more like actual leftists on, but um, pretty wide range of people. And they just talk for two or three hours, and they really don't really care if their conversation would like meet the high moral standard of like the Voxosphere. They just talk about whatever. And that show has been a runaway success. So you have to ask why more people haven't tried to emulate it. And I, I know we've already approached this to some degree, but you, you you know you were talking about kids who were coming out of Middlebury College and coming into these institutions and um, you know kind of pandering to almost themselves, like little versions of themselves who are reading these uh, reading publications from these institutions. Where is it really just that in your mind that the people who are refusing to say that it's women who have pregnant or that abortion is a women's issue are trying to be inclusive of, you know, trans people who identify as women, but biologically are not, or is there, is there something more insidious or potentially insidious going on there in, in your judgment? Um, I mean, I think it's just human nature. I, I don't, it's, it's complicated. It's like everyone wants to show they're on the right side of the issue and, and tribes develop rituals to show that. And, that's one of the rituals now is to not talk about women. I mean, I would question why you don't really see the same bans on talking about men. It seems to only uh, target women, but um, is it insidious? I don't know. I, I do think it makes it much harder to talk about the world in a plain way. I mean, talk about the world accurately, which is sort of a Orwellian perspective, but I, I think it's bad. And, and I think the more disconnected you are from like, I, I would like to think that any person who's like reasonably well-educated can read my articles and get something out of them. I try to write in a plain way. I try to assume not everyone reading already agrees with me or comes from my same, you know, socioeconomic or cultural background. And I think people are floating away from those values. A lot of younger journalists are, <clears throat> excuse me. I do think within every one of these institutions, there's a lot of sort of dissidents who are really unhappy with what's going on. Like I know at the New York times there are, they've had you know, fairly loud internal battles about this stuff. I know some people are unhappy at, at other outlets too. So 
I, I think in the long run, things are likely to bounce back somewhat, but I think there's going to be a lot of like infighting and, and sort of, uh, trying to get people fought. just all this garbage I think is going to continue for quite some time but I think I'm fairly hopeful about the ultimate outcome yeah and I would be curious to know if if you had a you know interactions with a young talented journalist who reminded you of yourself or just you you felt had the the stuff to make it in that world what kind of advice would you give that person as to where where to work how to work what, what's the best strategy right now to become you know, a a journalist who has the freedom to explore ideas and to write openly. I think like just try to find a place where you can do a lot of reporting, which is increasingly hard, but I wish I'd spent more of my early career years doing reporting instead of opinion writing. Uh, Either way, try to find some subject or subjects that aren't presently well covered where you can like be one of the people on that subject. I mean, that's the nice thing about journalism is like, you could be 22 years old and say, okay, I'm going to spend the next two or three years, assuming I can stay in journalism, trying to learn about subject X. And then by the time you're 25, you really might be one of the top voices on subject X, as long as it's a subject not a lot of people talk about. I I was able to, my entry point for New York Magazine was that I had written about behavioral science and they needed someone for that role. Once you're in the door, your beat can change. You can write about other stuff, but you know, uh, every young liberal journalist in the world wants to write about Trump and fascism and the proud boys. And there's a certain faddishness. And I think those are important subjects, but if your goal is to sort of mark yourself as, as different and worthy of opportunities, you should try to find a niche that isn't uh, so well covered. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to cover two subjects before we wrap up here. Um, The first is related to you and the, and your own future, right? Like where, you have you know monthly paying subscribers as i alluded to earlier it it seems like you're in a pretty leveraged great position to continue to do productive interesting work that uh, allows allows you the the freedom to explore various topics how do you see you know the next few years unfolding for yourself in terms of how you want to spend your time i mean i know you have a popular podcast you do a lot of writing is it more of the same how do you think about what's kind of coming up next for you uh, I, yeah, I mean, I obviously just hope this continues. I feel very lucky and and there's no guarantee it will. If it does continue, I mean, my goal is to try to use uh, the podcast and newsletter to sort of subsidize, you know, two or three longer magazine articles a year that I'm, I'm very proud of and that I really sink my teeth into. I'm pitching a couple right now, um, you know, just for mainstream outlets where I can get good editing. Even if you're paid at like a fairly high rate and and a high rate in 2021 isn't that high uh a a 10,000 word magazine article is not a good economic proposition when you think about how much time you have to put into it like yeah um so i i like the idea of trying to take some of the funds from from the Substack and the podcast and and using that to do more long form magazine writing so that's that would be my dream version of this uh but you know mostly i just hope the newsletter and the podcast continue to grow because it's um again it's a fortunate situation to be in yeah and i would love to dive in a little bit more into that aspect of journalism specifically and i I, it's a it's an unfortunate but crucial and um a kind of a a cannot be avoided subject matter related to the work that you do which is the financial aspect of it right and and how to how to eke out a living or have a a lifestyle that you're comfortable with in doing the work that you do. And you're one of the people that has been able to accomplish that or seemingly accomplish that and to, and to be able to really make a life for yourself in the work that, that you're up to. How, how would, first of all, like, how did you do that? And how would you recommend someone who is younger than you? Again, like the, the recent college student or somebody in their twenties who reminds you of yourself, what, what kind of advice would you give a person like that to begin to attempt to carve out a living like that? I think, I think I can't give advice because like I came from an upper middle class background, uh, and had the financial support I needed to do unpaid internships. My first job in Washington, DC, I think I made $33,000 a year, but it was fine. I just shared a group house. I I think throughout my twenties, I probably never made more than 40 or $50,000 in a year. Um, 
but I didn't have debt and, and I always had a safety net. And that's why it would be disingenuous for me to like give people advice about how to sort of survive. Because I think journalism is like unrelentingly hostile to people from yeah. working class or even middle class backgrounds. And I think I also got in right before like the crash, um, which I think really reverberated across the industry and destroyed a lot of publications, uh, not that things have gotten much better. So um I, I I really don't know. I don't know how I would have done it if if I had had to like hit the ground running right after college and start paying off loans and making a decent salary. I just don't think I would have been able to do it. Yeah. And for people who, and I, I identify with that as well, personally, I mean, I, I lived in DC on basically no money, but I did come from a similar kind of a background where I, I knew I would survive if it didn't work out. Um, for people who are in that fortunate position, right, who let's say hypothetically got a scholarship to college or have been able to mitigate some of the debt that often uh, accumulates from coming out of a university and is able to, you know, live a 20s lifestyle for a few years or many years in their 20s to do the work that they love or they're particularly interested in. Um, how did you how did you make it work? How did you eventually get to the point where you are? I mean, it, it seems like having an audience of a, of a sufficient size certainly helps. Um, but when you tell yourself the story about how you got into a position where you have the independence that you do or seem to, um, what really helped for you to be able to, to accomplish that? I do think it was like carving out, carving out a niche as someone who could write about behavioral science because you know, a lot of people want to work at New York Magazine, but I had the specific skill they were looking for at that time. And then by the time I left, I was, you know, I think spending about, I, I had shifted into a writing role and I was spending maybe half my time on behavioral science stuff or even less. I was writing about internet culture and some politics and some other stuff. So you just, you need to give them a reason to want to hire you and to stand out from the hundreds or thousands of resumes uh, they're getting. I, you know, for people who can be in the industry in their twenties and 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 have a life raft, just try to find a place where you can learn from like good journalists and work under them, and try to stay away from people who like don't don't understand the difference between journalism and activism. I, I just mm. I think there's certain like muscles you need to develop of skepticism, and and it's not your job to do PR for like activist organizations you you feel sympathetically towards. So. I just wish more people would uh, develop those journalistic muscles, but it's hard because so many newspapers are died and that's usually where you work those muscles out. Yeah. Do you remember if there was a time for you where you realized that you had kind of gotten to a place where you you felt like you could go out on your own, right? Um, where, you know, at one point you're, you're maybe living a in a manner that you're relying upon institutional um, money in order to be able to do the work that you do. Like, was there a point at which you, you felt confident enough in your abilities? And it does seem, seem like you, there's a term I used to work in, in the tech field uh, in San Francisco. And there was a, there's a popular phrase in that world called specific knowledge, right? If you, if you develop specific knowledge about something that other people don't have, it is a, a potential point of leverage for productizing yourself and to distinguishing yourself from other people that can um, make you in demand in, in the workforce. Um, was there a point that you remember where you thought confidently, you know, I really can go out on my own at this point? Uh, no. I mean, I, so after I, I, I got the, the book deal, I was lucky that like it was a sufficient enough advance so I could leave New York Magazine. I knew I'd prefer working on my own than working in an office, even though I missed some elements of it. And then yep. again, things just lined up in the right way where like uh, in 2020, we launched the podcast and that was when my newsletter also started to become a sustainable thing. So, you know, like a year ago, we were just starting to feel like, wow, this podcast is, is, is doing something. So, you know, before that, I, 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 there was some degree of uncertainty all along. It was really probably only in the last, I don't know, X months that I really felt like, okay, I, I'm in a stable place. And part of it is because you assume if you're not latched onto a mainstream publication, you're precarious. But you know, what's more precarious, working for a mainstream publication owned basically owned by some venture capital firm whose like priorities could shift tomorrow, or or who doesn't believe in journalism, or working in a situation where you are 
directly funded by thousands of your subscribers. Like it seems like in one situation, a couple little things can go wrong and you'll lose your job. Whereas to lose a base of thousands of, of subscribers to you specifically or to your podcast specifically would require something truly apocalyptic. Yeah. Yeah. As we wind this down, I, I want to talk about other people and other institutions for you, right? If, if there are people who are listening to this who really appreciate the work that, that you do and that Katie does and, and other people like you, who else in your mind um, are, you know, public are journalists who are doing work similar to yours that you admire, that you would recommend, that you think are fair-minded um, and accessible to the general public? Who, who comes to mind or what institutions do you still feel that way about? I mean, I, I think all most of the institutions I criticize still have some good people. I mean, you know, I haven't read the piece yet, but at Vox just yesterday, Herman Lopez wrote about, you know, how police probably have reduced crime, which I think is a pretty well-grounded finding, but it's controversial in the Vox sphere. Uh, Herman, his name is spelled German. Herman Lopez, he's honest. You know, Matt Iglesias for policy analysis, same thing. He he refuses to like read the room. He'll say what needs saying. Um, I guess Nellie Bowles just left the New York Times. She did some really good sort of reporting. John McWhorter. There's a huge number of people. And and I don't necessarily seek out certain voices. Like I'll trust them when I come across them. But I, I still think there's a lot of good people. And I don't like when people are like, oh, I'm no longer going to read the Times or the Atlantic. Because like there's, there's a lot of good voices out there. But I, I think you can develop heuristics for knowing when to trust people. I think people willing to stand up during a moment of outrage and ask questions like right off the bat, that's probably someone you should trust people who don't just go along with the crowd. Uh, Connor Friedersdorf at the Atlantic is another good example of that. Hmm. Well, Jesse, I, I want to thank you for doing this um, and, and taking the time and, and having this conversation. And the last thing I want to ask you is related to how, how people can, can help, how people can help you. What is the best way for people who, love your work, who enjoy your, your book or your podcast. Um, what's the easiest or best way from your perspective for those people to contribute to what you're up to? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you're interested in sort of the replication crisis and, and the Ted talkification of social psychology, my book, the quick fix, uh, you could buy that. And then my newsletter is called single minded Jesse single.substack.com. And the podcast is blocked and reported. Uh, the newsletter and the podcast both have a lot of free stuff. And then also you can get more stuff um, if you pay. So uh, I would invite folks to check all that out. Cool. Well, man, it was really great to meet you and have this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So um, I really appreciate the time and uh, best of luck with all the work. Thank you. Yeah, that was a really good conversation. I'll, um, I'll send you my backup copy now. Okay, great. Thanks, Jesse. Right. Bye, man. See you, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 